You are now listening to the smooth, mellifluous sounds of Red's Room Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to episode number 22 of the Red's Room Podcast. I'm your host, Red. And I'm your co-host, Jake. And today we are talking about the Waco Massacre. Mm -hmm. As always, our references are in the episode description. Please check those if you care. Okay, give you a little description here. The Waco Siege, also known as the Waco Massacre, was the siege by U.S. federal government and Texas state law enforcement officials of a compound belonging to the religious cult known as the Branch Davidians between February 28th and April 19th, 1993. The Branch Davidians, led by David Koresh, were headquartered at Mount Carmel Center Ranch in unincorporated McLennan County, Texas, 13 miles northeast of Waco. Suspecting the group of stockpiling illegal weapons, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, obtained a search warrant for the compound and and arrest warrants for Koresh and several of the group's members. Fuck yeah, dude. In a nutshell, that is what we are talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go into some backstory here, try to give you as much context around this as we can. I think it was a really good choice after Ruby Ridge. We're going right into Waco. This is a nice little two-parter for y'all. We choose these on purpose, these topics on purpose. Yeah, we try to choose stuff in order that goes together if we can. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you will see as we get into this why they connect. Uh, they're totally isolated events, mm-hmm. uh, but you'll see why, what the similarities are. And uh, we got, just like Ruby Ridge, we have a a lot of information here mm-hmm. that we're going to do our best to condense because... We don't like to drag things out for three, four hours. Yeah. We want to give you the whole story. Um, You know, just get right to it. Mm -hmm. Totally. There is a lot of reading here. And Red was saying on the last one, the throat's a little dry, (coughs) working working pretty hard here. But we're going to do our best here, try to make it as... Yeah. Maybe it'll make me sound cooler. (laughs) Yeah, try to make it as good to Um, digest as possible. So, yeah, I'm going to have a lot of reading here. Let's... uh, Let's get rolling. Um, We're going to talk about the Branch Davidians. What are they? Um, The Branch Davidians are an apocalyptic cult founded in 1955 by Benjamin Rodin. They regard themselves as a continuation of the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, established by Victor Hutef in 1935. The Seven-Day Adventist Church is an Adventist Protestant Christian denomination which is distinguished by its observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week, and the Christian Gregorian and the Hebrew calendar as the Sabbath. Its emphasis on the imminent second coming of Jesus Christ and its uh, annihilationist so- soteriology. Uh, The denomination grew out of the Millwright movement in the United States during the mid-19th century, and it was formally established in 1863. 
Among its co-founders was Ellen G. White, whose extensive writings are still held in high regard by the church. Much of the theology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church corresponds to common evangelical Christian teachings, such as the Trinity and the infallibility of Scripture. Brief description of Seventh-day Adventist, which is where the Davidians get their basis from. Mm-hmm. Here's how they came to be. Uh, Hotef, a Hotef, a bull. A Bulgarian immigrant and a seven-day Adventist wrote a series of tracts titled The Shepherd's Rod, which called for the reform of the Seventh-day Adventist church. After his ideas were rejected by Adventist leaders, Hotef and his followers formed the group that later became known as Davidians. And some of them moved onto a tract of land outside the west of Waco, Texas, United States, where they built a community called the Mount Carmel Center. There it is. Which served as the headquarters for the movement. After Hotef's death in 1955, his wife Florence took control of the Davidian organization. On February 27, 1973, New Mount Carmel was sold to Benjamin Roden, uh, Lois Roden, and their son, George Roden, trustees for the General Association of Branch Davidian Seven Day Aventus. From this point on, the property was simply known as Mount Carmel. Upon the death of Roden in 1978, his wife Lois became the next Davidian prophet at the compound. So she was the leader. Mm-hmm. It's changed hands few, few times. They call it a compound. It's kind of like a... Uh, um, Oh, the uh, word is eluding me. What, a mansion? No, no. What's it called? Uh, um, when you get a bunch of people on a group of land that are living off the land together. A reservation? No, that's Indians. Come on, man. What is it? Like hippies. Thought that would spark it. <laughs> I can't help you out. Commune. Here commune, yeah. Kind of more like a commune. Um no offense to hippies. I didn't mean that. <laughs> I love hippies. Kind of a hippie myself. Anyways, so yeah, they're more, it says compound, more like a commune. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, though, they do get some buildings built kind of co- more compound-like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, anyways, so let's move on. In 1981, a young man named Vermin Howe, later known as David Koresh, uh, came to New Mount Carmel and studied biblical prophecy under Lois Roden. Koresh began claiming the gift of prophecy. It's speculated that Koresh began an intimate relationship with the then 60-year-old Lois. Koresh eventually began to claim that God had chosen him to father a child by Lois, who would be the chosen one. In 1983, Lois allowed Koresh to begin teaching his own message called the Serpent's Root, which caused controversy in the group. Lois' son, George Rodden, intended to be the group's next leader, and he considered Koresh an interloper. When Koresh announced that God had instructed him to marry Rachel Jones, who then added Koresh to her name, a period of calm ensued at the Mount Carmel Center, but it proved only temporary and i believe there was also some uh animosity there because he moved away from lois Mm -hmm. you know i think it's just looks like he 
charmed Lois mm-hmm. to get himself in a higher ranking position in the group. Not to sugarcoat it, it does kind of seem like <laughs> he possibly wanted a higher position in this group of Branch Davidians and just started fucking <laughs> someone who was An high up lady. in there. Yeah. Because she was in charge. It's like people, you know, not to speculate too much, was he really attracted to her? I don't know if I want to believe that, but if you want to get in, that's it's not a bad way to go about it, I guess. Yeah, just seems like he kind of weaseled his way in there, mm-hmm. and then once he got up there, he chose a younger woman to, uh, you know, be with, and mm-hmm. just kind of used his prophecy as a way to say that he was supposed to do that with her. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what it seems like. <sighs> yeah. So let's. Let's get into it a little more. <laughs> a fire destroyed a $500,000 administration building and press. Roden said, Rodden, I mean Roden, Rodden said Koresh started the fire, but Koresh replied that, quote, no man set that fire, end quote, and that it was a judgment of God. Rodden claimed to have the support of the majority of the sect and forced Koresh and his group off the property at gunpoint. Koresh and around 25 followers set up camp at Palestine, Texas, 90 miles from Waco, where they lived under rough conditions in buses and tents for the next two years. During this time, Koresh undertook recruitment of new followers in California, the United Kingdom, Israel, and Australia. Which is so weird. Uh, Yeah, weird combination of places. Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, he didn't discriminate. Um, That same year, he traveled to Israel, where he claimed he had a vision that he was the modern-day Cyrus, which is a weird person to be, Mm -hmm. uh, biblically. Why do you want to be Cyrus? But I don't know. He's the modern-day Cyrus. Uh, However, that only lasted until 1991, when Koresh moved the group back to the U.S., He said the prophecies of Daniel would be fulfilled in Waco and that the Mount Carmel Center was the Davidic kingdom. In the 48 Hours documentary I watched, too, that little stint in Israel, it kind of made it seem like the Israelis kind of kicked his ass out. No, no, that's later. Oh, okay. My bad. Uh, Yeah, sorry to cut you off. No, it lasted in 1991. That's it. Oh, you're yeah. right. I yeah. did reference it. No, I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm going to reference it again later, actually. No, yeah, that's it right there. Yeah. My, my, I apologize. No, you're Sorry. good. There's, there's a lot of information here, but I think after a little while, some of the Israelis, they're like, man, you need to get the fuck out of here. You're, you're a little too crazy for your own good. But you're Sorry. right. We kind of jumped forward a little bit there, but it, yeah. it's interesting. My bad. I did mention it. We're, we'll, I'm going to get into that again, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Planting the, the story seed. progresses to that point. Um, little uh, back and forth in this story to cover everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 1987, Rodden exhumed at least one body from the community cemetery. Uh, Rodden said he was just moving the cemetery while Koresh claimed that Rodden had issued a challenge to resurrect the body and that whoever resurrected the body would be the new leader. Koresh went to authorities to file charges charges against Rodden for illegally exhuming a corpse, but was told he would have to show proof such as a photograph. Koresh seized the opportunity to seek criminal prosecution of Rodden by returning to the Mount Carmel Center with seven armed followers, allegedly attempting to get photographic proof 
Uh, Koresh's group was discovered by Rodden and a gunfight broke out. When the sheriff arrived, Rodden had already suffered a minor gunshot wound and was pinned down behind a tree. As a result of the incident, Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. At the trial, Koresh explained that he went to the Mount Carmel Center to uncover evidence of criminal disturbance of a corpse by Rodden. Koresh's followers were acquitted, and in Koresh's case, a mistrial was declared. In 1989, Rodden murdered Wayman Dale Adair with an axe blow to the skull after Adair stated his belief that he himself was the true messiah. Rodden claimed that the man was sent by Koresh to kill him. Pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. So another guy in the group decides to be a messiah. So now we're getting three. There's a a big power struggle here, it seems like. Yeah, there's David, Koresh, Rodden, and then now this dude's like, no, I'm the messiah, and he just gets axed to the head. (laughs) There's an axe, and there's a fucking gunfight to, (laughs) I guess, choose who's going to run shit here. These guys are ruthless. This is insane. <laughs> yeah. This is some gang shit. <laughs> yeah. That's all gang for real, for real. So axes him to the head. Uh uh, let's see. Rodden, um, he was judged insane and confined to a psychiatric hospital at Big Spring, Texas. Dang, dude. Uh, since Rodden owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center, Koresh and his followers were able to raise the money and reclaim the property. Rodden continued to harass the Koresh faction by filing legal papers while imprisoned. When Koresh and his followers followers reclaimed the Mount Carmel Center, they discovered that tenants who had rented from Rodden had left behind a meth lab. Oh, my God. Which Koresh reported to the local police department and asked to have removed. I guess the meth lab might explain (laughs) saying he's the Messiah and the other dude axing him in the head. I had a little section on this. I did a little research. You covered it a little better, but I uh, I titled it as like David's claim to the throne. Like that's <laughs> that's how he got to a point of leadership in there. It was a gun battle, another weird dude killing a guy, a meth lab, raising money, and that's insane. And he he took over, man. Oh. Hey, I did make a mistake. That was what I had on Israel. So didn't you have something to say on it? No, that was about it. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, guys. I, I messed that up. I thought I had something later on, but no, that that was it. I just got to it mm-hmm. faster in the story. Yeah. I, re- I remembered it when I went through this. The way I wrote it down is that David, I believe this is 1990, he had a small stint in Israel, and he was trying to claim that war was going to come there. He brought his group mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. his followers. His- and, yeah, and... The way I wrote it down is they kicked him the fuck out. Like he got a little too weird, a little too wild. And after his failure in Israel, he came back to Waco. And this is kind of our start of this topic here where shit starts to get a little weird. If it already hasn't. Gotcha. They're like, we're not putting up with your cult shit. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here, mm-hmm. basically. Even the Middle East was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're too insane for us. Yeah. That's that's funny. Okay. So now, though, Koresh has, he's, he's got control of the entire group. He's mm-hmm. got control of Mount Carmel. He is now the man. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk. I got a few comments here on his leadership. Um, 
let's see here. How, who was acquired the position of spiritual leader from Rodden, asserted it by changing his name to David Koresh, suggesting that he had ties to the biblical King David and Cyrus the Great. Koresh is the Hebrew version of the name Cyrus. Hmm. He wanted to create a new lineage of world leaders. So that's why he uh, chose that name. He's got big goals here. Yeah. Uh, Interpreting Revelation 5-2, Koresh identified himself with the lamb mentioning therein, or mentioned therein. This is traditionally believed to symbolize Jesus Christ. However, Koresh suggested that the lamb would come before Jesus and pave the way for his second coming. So Koresh just placed himself in a Bible verse about Jesus and <laughs> yeah. said it was about him. He just copied and pasted that that shit in there. Yeah, and he also had like all these uh, uh, ideologies surrounded around the seven seals and revelation and the the end. He was basically creating a Christian doomsday cult. Like they were looking for Armageddon, mm-hmm. um, and then they were. I don't know. He kind of taught him that they were going to like populate the earth after Armageddon, I think was part of what his <laughs> teachings were. And I guess I'll get into a teaching right here. In 1989, David announced a new revelation from God called the new light. You have anything to say about the new light? Yeah. I just mentioned this to Jake when we were talking about this, that new light is a term used by basically every cult ever. (laughs) So new light is a way for them to change doctrine. So if David wanted to do something, or this goes for any cult, if they want to change something and get you to do or believe something else, they basically portray it as we have new light from God Mm -hmm shedding new light on our interpretation of the scriptures, and this is now how we understand it to mean. It's their justification for changing something they have already said. Uh, For many cults, if Mm -hmm. they prophesy something and it doesn't happen, they will say, oh, we've got this new light from God, and then they give their reason of why it didn't and what's going to happen now, and then that's how they keep everyone hooked and with everyone's cognitive dissonance, they're so invested in the group, the majority of people stay hooked and mm-hmm. get hooked even deeper into the group. They get even more committed to the group. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, that's my commentary on New Light. Mm-hmm. I, this is a, I wanted to cover this New Light because this is a good segue into this next section here. So in a nutshell, this New Light, basically he claims that all the women belong to him, himself, David. This is kind of the turning it's a good point. New light for him. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of, in my opinion, the turning point of the cult. Shit kind of went downhill from here. But uh, I just want to add to that he always portrays it as that he doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I don't want this, but God wants me to. Yeah, it's like, dude, this is your fucked yeah. up fantasy right here. I don't want to fuck all the women, but God wants me to do it. So I guess I'm gonna, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gonna white knuckle through it. Mm -hmm. So this is his kind of claim right here. If you were a woman, you had to have sex with David to go to hell to go to heaven. Not just adults either. In a 48 Hours documentary I watched, they had an interview with this lady named Grace Adams. She was a member of the Branch Davidians cult, and he's gonna reference this here soon. She explained that David would have sex with girls as young as 12 years old, which 
it's pretty hard to stomach. I, you know, I don't love talking about this, but this is just what surrounds this topic. This is just what it is. So that's insane. Mm -hmm. This lady, Grace Adams, she was very scared of what was to come. Obviously the, the session with David and decided she wanted to get the sex over with. She knocked on David's door at 3 a.m. David came to the door and he was pissed. He claimed that God made all of his sexual selections. He publicly humili humiliated her in front of the cult and then locked her up in a 10 by 8 cabin 24 hours a day for four months. He was supposedly very physically abusive to her. After requesting many times to leave, David finally let her go. And the, his reasoning for letting him go is that God came to him and said that he's done with her. But in reality, this lady, Grace, she was from overseas and her visa, he got word that her visa was expiring. So you you take that into account. He was really just sketched immigration was going to come. So who knows how long she would have been wow. tortured in that cabin. But uh, when she left, she was obviously very traumatized. She spent two weeks in a psychiatric ward and then ended up leaving and going back home. But if you do, we'll have it linked below this documentary. She seems very genuine, very shook up. And I know that's that's a terrible thing, to, uh, this, this little topic to talk about, but I feel like it's, it's necessary so we can get an idea of how crazy this David Koresh character is. Yeah. Talk about a psychopathic God complex. Mm-hmm. Like, she's just like, all right, I'm just going to get the sex over with. And then he just goes full insane on her. Mm -hmm. Just just terrible. <coughs> he probably didn't find her attractive. I, he's just a piece, man. Like, Dude, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, get back on topic here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry for that shitty note, but I yeah. felt like we had to add it. I feel like we've uh, been painting a certain picture about him, which is true. But we should also mention that, like, he wasn't ugly, and he was actually very charismatic. Yeah, which you'd have to be to pull this off. Mm -hmm. So just uh, uh, you know, just based on these what we've been saying, you might just picture this terrible, ugly person, which he is a terrible person inside. Mm -hmm. But he was very charismatic, and uh, uh, I would assume very charming when he wanted to be. And he was a musician too. Before he took control of the cult, he had a little. A little stint out in California. He tried to become a successful musician. It didn't pan out for him, but yeah, you can find a few songs on him on YouTube or wherever you look up. There's this one. It goes, uh, "There's a madman living in Waco," and uh, <laughs> the song isn't great, but it's not terrible. I guess right. I would say. Like he does have some talent. He can play the guitar. He can sing. But yeah. And on the compound, I think they had a whole uh, mm -hmm. they had a whole like stage and area. Yeah, they would think, get down. I think he would perform for the whole you know group there. There is at least one I watched there, and in the documentary that Forty Eight Hours, they had footage of him singing and playing the guitar in front of his people. Yep, they would, and other members would play too. Like they'd get a whole band going. Mm -hmm. They they would they would get down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they would get down. Okay, let's get into where uh, the already terrible situation gets worse. <laughs> okay. Okay. Allegations and investigation. On February 27th, 1993, the Waco Tribune Herald began publishing The Sinful Messiah, a series of articles by Mark England and Darlene McCormick, who reported allegations that Koresh had physically abused children in the compound and had committed statutory rape by taking multiple underage brides. Mm -hmm. 
Koresh was also said to advocate polygamy for himself and declared himself married to several female residents of the small community. The paper claimed that Koresh had announced he was entitled to at least 140 wives and that he was entitled to claim any of the women in the group as his, that he had fathered at least a dozen children, and that some of these mothers became brides as young as 12 or 13 years old. Yeah, that's pretty gross. So this is all true, but there is no proof at this point. Mm-hmm. I also in an, in that documentary said there was as much as much as or even more than twenty children, so we got at least a dozen. I mean, he was he was fucking. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's disgusting. It's pretty bad. Okay, <laughs> moving on. There's no sugarcoat in this, <laughs> yeah, folks. I know it's terrible. Just. Let's move on. Uh, In addition to allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct, Koresh and his followers were suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons. In May of 1992, Chief Deputy Daniel uh, Weyenberg of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, to notify him that his office had been contacted by a local UPS representative concerned about a report by a local driver. The UPS driver said a package um, had broken open on delivery to the Branch Davidian residence, revealing at least half a dozen grenades. He also noted that the compound had been receiving packages from an arms dealer for months. Did you have something about that, Jake? So this, uh, this guy's name, this UPS driver, his name is Larry Gilbreth. And he delivered a lot of packages to the Branch Davidians compound at least once a week. In that documentary, he said sometimes even more than once a week. And after the packages, the packages slowly started getting heavier and heavier. And he started, you know, what the hell's going on? He started reading some labels and realized that there's there's some firearms coming here. Hmm. And another crazy thing is that when Larry would deliver these packages, a lot of the time, most of the time, David would greet him and sign for the packages himself. And I had that written down where it was in February 1992 that he moved the box and just a bunch of hand grenades just fell out. Okay. And uh, he contacts uh, the sheriff department and then that's how the ATF gets involved. Gotcha. And uh, Larry actually even helped out the ATF the ATF, he brought an ATF agent with him for a delivery one time, and David was not stupid. He knew what was going on right away, and he let Larry know, like, I know that there is people watching me, and Larry was definitely sketched after that. Jeez. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, good on Larry. Yeah, good on Trying Larry. Trying to do the right thing. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> okay. Moving on with the story. On June 9th, 1992, the ATF opened a formal investigation, and a week later it was classified as sensitive, thereby calling for a high degree of oversight from both Houston and headquarters. On July 30th, ATF agents David, uh, how do you say that name? David Aguilera? No, Aguilera, I don't know. David and Skinner visited the Branch Davidians gun dealer, Henry McMahon, who tried to get them to talk with Koresh on the phone. Koresh um, offered to let ATF inspect 
uh, to let ATF inspect the Branch Davidians' weapons and paperwork and asked to speak with Aguilera, but Aguilera declined. If I'm saying it, I, I don't know. I feel it's like there's a enough. better way to say that name. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the ATF began surveillance from a house across the road from the compound several months before the siege. Their cover was noticeably poor. The, quote, college students were in their 30s, had new cars, were not registered at the local schools, and did not keep a schedule that would have fit any legitimate employment or classes. Uh, The investigation included sending in an undercover agent, Robert Rodriguez, whose identity Koresh learned, though he chose not to reveal that fact until the day of the raid. Mm -hmm. So they did a terrible job. Mm Mm-hmm. And Caress lets Rodriguez coming in, even though he knows who he is, lets him talk to him and stuff. That's just... Yeah, it yeah. was kind of the same with the UPS driver. I remember him saying, like, that ATF agent they, they brought, they had come with that delivery. He had, like, long hair, and, like, he didn't look like a UPS driver. Like, they could have done a better job. Sounds like it. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty poor police work there. Come on, guys. Yeah, you can do better, man. <sighs> okay. Incompetency once again. Yeah, big time. Um, All right. The ATF obtained a search warrant on suspicion that the Davidians were modifying guns to have illegal automatic fire capability. Former Branch Davidian Mark, uh, I don't know that last name either, claimed that Koresh had um, M16 lower receiver parts. Combining M16 trigger components with a modified AR-15 lower receiver is, according to ATF regulations, uh, constructive possession of an unregistered machine gun. Regulated in the Firearm Owners Protection Act of 1986. He was making some OPARs. Apparently. Mm-hmm. But isn't that hearsay? Someone That's just, true. Uh, this guy made the claim that he had that stuff how did did they know he was i don't know that they knew he was even doing that if he did did he even do that i'm assuming he was mod. i guess from what i read and watched i didn't hear anything of modifying weapons but what i do know is they had a shitload of weapons regardless hundreds they did did have grenades which i don't Mm -hmm. think you can have grenades and now i'm remembering I believe they even got a ship it, a shipment for a grenade launcher. So they had oh. like OP. So they definitely had illegal stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. But well. I guess, too, from what I heard, is that mm-hmm. Texas law really didn't prohibit like mass shipments of weapons. Okay. So I don't know. A lot of the stuff I don't he was doing, I don't know if it was technically illegal, but he's definitely getting on the ATF radar for sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. It just, uh, to me, kind of rang a bell. It seemed like, uh, you know, kind of like Ruby Ridge, like the ATF gets one kind of really shaky charge. Like, here we go. We got him. Yeah, now we're going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They probably could have got him on something better, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about the raid. Um, The ATF attempted to execute their search warrant on Sunday morning, February 28th of 93, Their plan depended on reaching the compound without the Branch Davidians being armed and prepared. Any advantage of surprise was lost when a KWTX TV reporter who had been tipped off about the raid asked for directions from a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier who was coincidentally Koresh's brother-in-law. 
Well, she had like 20, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, uh, supposedly. Supposedly. Uh, but uh, Koresh then told undercover ATF agent Robert, Robert Rodriguez that they knew a raid was imminent. Rodriguez was astonished to find that his cover had been blown, which it had been blown the whole time. He just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, he made an excuse and left the compound. When asked later what the Branch Davidians had been doing when he left the compound, Rodriguez replied, they were praying. Branch Davidian survivors have written that Koresh ordered selected male followers to begin arming and taking up defensive positions, while the women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. Koresh told them he would try to speak to the agents, and what happened next would depend on the agents' intentions. The ATF arrived at 9.45 a.m. in a convoy of civilian vehicles containing un- uh, uh, containing uniformed personnel and SWAT-style tactical gear. ATF agents claimed they heard shots coming from within the compound, while Branch Davidian survivors claimed that the first shots came from the ATF agents outside. A suggested reason may have been an accidental discharge of a weapon, possibly by an ATF agent, causing the ATF to respond with fire from automatic weapons. Other reports claim the first shots were fired by the ATF dog team sent to kill the dogs in the Branch Davidian kennel. Three helicopters of the Army National Guard were used as an aerial distraction and all took incoming fire. During the first shots, Koresh was wounded, shot in the hand and the stomach. Within a minute of the raid start, Branch Davidian Wayne Martin called the emergency services, pleading for them to stop shooting. Martin asked for a ceasefire and audio tapes rec- uh, record of him saying, here they come again, and that's them shooting. That's not us. And I think Koresh got wounded because I think he was walking out to talk to the ATF. Is that what it was? I think so. Okay. Uh, he was going to talk to him, and then he just gets sh- some uh, somewhere gunfire happens, and then they just dot him it, up. Just Yeah, hell breaks loose. He ate that shot, too. Yeah, two shots. Mm-hmm. He just took him, gets back inside. Oh. So, again, it's like Ruby Ridge. Things just escalate immediately. Exactly. And I think the ATF was looking for a win here because Ruby Ridge already happened, and then they wanted to show mm-hmm. they heard children you know, were being abused. So they're like, we're going to go save the kids. This will be a big win for us. <laughs> yeah, save the kids is you the know, perfect way to say it. We'll look will look really good and people will forget that we screwed up Ruby Ridge. I think that's kind of their mentality here. And they immediately start screwing yeah, it up. Yeah, history repeats itself yet again. <sighs> yeah, it's terrible. I think they'd fucking learn by now, man. They're definitely a lot more justified going in on this one though. True. Um but yeah, it's 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 starting bad. Mm-hmm. Uh So uh Wait, did I read that right? No, nope. battle ensued. That's where this is where I am. Yep, a battle ensued. The ATF agent was an ATF agent was the first casualty. Uh, the National Guard helicopter helicopters took fire, and after one of their crew was injured, uh, they pulled the helicopters away. 
A few agents entered the second floor by ladders. One was shot and killed, another wounded. On the ground floor, agents attempted to break into the armory but received heavy fire, and two agents were injured and another killed when he attempted to lay covering fire for them to escape. The exchange of fire continued, but 45 minutes into the raid, the gunfire began to slow down as agents began to run low on ammunition. The shootings continued for a total of two hours. Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLennan County Sheriff Department contacted the ATF and negotiated a ceasefire. Thank God. The gunfight was going on for so long, they were literally running out of ammo. I like how it says the agents ran low on ammo. So that means the Davidians were They were still stockpiled, like, man. Yeah, they were solid. Uh-huh. Ugh. Dude, I would love to see that fucking armory. I saw a few like small panning videos of like all the ARs lined up, but they had a shitload of ammo ready to go, man. That's insane. Another thing too in that documentary, uh-huh. uh kind of a close by neighbor, I guess as close as you could be. It was a farmer who owned land. He said he saw them like the Colt come out and like test fire their weapons, but they weren't shooting at just targets. They were shooting at like human silhouettes. Nice. So they were like, they were prepped and ready. They had been training. Uh huh. I believe that they were training for like Armageddon. That's how he, Koresh describes is that there is like a <coughs> war coming to Waco and they need to be prepped. Yeah. They thought they were going to be like God's army now. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's really what he makes it seem like. So you pair like their training with the religious belief and dedication that they had, like that's like they had to be like insane soldiers for Koresh. I mean, they had the fucking motive almost kind of it makes me think like robotic almost like they're ready for the cause. No fucks given. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. And I think they believed that in the end times that they would have to fight the government. So Mm -hmm. they. They probably thought that things were already happening, right? David definitely planted the seed. Yeah, he did. It's This is kind of like common thought in these type of, mm-hmm. you know, apocalyptic doomsday cults. Very fear-mongery. Yes. Yeah. That's how he keeps power. Keep him scared. Mm-hmm. You know? It really makes you think. It's, it's common. <laughs> it works. Tried and true. Okay, so more reading. This is just the beginning. <laughs> yeah, the beginning of the showdown. Yeah, the FBI isn't even here yet. Correct. So uh, they're about to pull up, though. Um, ATF agents established contact with Koresh and others inside the compound after they withdrew. The FBI took command soon after, as a result of the deaths of federal agents placing Jeff Jamar, head of the bureau's San Antonio field office, in charge of the siege as site commander. The FBI hostage rescue team was headed by HRT, that's hostage rescue team, Commander Richard Rogers, who had previously been criticized for his actions during the Ruby Ridge incident. We got the same deal. They're using the same fucking guy, man. Yep. He should have lost his job then, but Mm -hmm. here he is from Ruby Ridge. Um, As at Ruby Ridge, Rogers um, often um, overrode the site command at Waco and had mobilized both the blue and gold HRT tactical teams to the same site, which ultimately created pressure to resolve the situation tactically due to the lack of HRT reserves. So this guy hasn't learned, and he still is trying to push tactical means. Mm -hmm. 
Um, at first, the Davidians had telephone contact with local news media, and Koresh gave phone interviews. The FBI cut Davidian, uh, Davidian communication to the outside world. For the next 51 days, communication with those inside was by telephone by a group of 25 FBI negotiators. The final Justice Department report found that negotiation, the negotiators criticized the tactical commanders for undercutting negotiations. So, again, this same guy, he is, he's not even trying to let the negotiators do their job. He's trying to just go tactical. It's his way or the highway, it seems like. He's a cowboy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dude, you know. Surprised he's not in the CIA. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Where is the coke he is smuggling? He just wants to go in shooting. He can, doesn't care. Can we give this guy a piss test, please? I bet you he's coked up. Maybe. <laughs> that's, that's what it seems like to me. He seems a little gung-ho. Yeah, he just wants to shoot it out. Mm -hmm. oh, I don't. Yeah, not good. Um, during the siege, the FBI sent a video camera to the Branch Davidians. In the videotape made by Koresh's followers, Koresh introduced his children and his wives to the FBI negotiators, including several minors who claimed to have had babies fathered by Koresh. Dude, it's so nasty, man. So this is the first evidence we get um, that he did, in fact you know, have sex with minors mm -hmm. and, and they had children. That's, this is, yeah, it's pretty bad, man. You can't really get much worse than that. Yeah. Uh, Koresh had fathered perhaps 14 of the children who stayed with him in the compound. Several branch Davidians made statements in the video on day nine, Monday, March 8th, the branch Davidians sent out the videotape to show the FBI that there were no hostages but everyone was staying inside of their own free will. The video also included a message from Koresh. Um, uh, the negotiator log showed that when the tape was reviewed, there was concern that the tapes released to the media would gain sympathy for Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Is this kind of a little 200 IQ move from Koresh? Yeah, he... He's playing to the sympathy. Everyone, hey, everyone here wants to be here. Yeah. They all love me. Like, what are you guys doing shooting us up? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he, he does. It's it's kind of um, manipulative and... Uh, Brainwashy. Yeah. Well, they recognize it. They're like, ah, oh, we shouldn't release this tape because mm -hmm. people might, you know, sympathize with this guy, even though he's a child abuser. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Insane. Uh, let's see. As the siege wore on, Two factions developed within the FBI, one believing negotiation would be the answer, the other force. Increasingly aggressive techniques were used to try to force the Branch Davidians out. For instance, sleep deprivation of the inhabitants through an all-night broadcast of recordings of jet planes, pop music, Buddhist chanting, and the screams of rabbits being slaughtered. Yeah, so that's like their non-violent way of trying to get them out. Have you seen yeah. like this happens sometimes in real life where they 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 have an arrest warrant for someone and they won't come out and they'll put on like insanely loud noises and just things that are hard to listen to and most people can't take it for much longer. They'll come out. Yeah, it is a real form of torture. Mhm. Mm it's weird the things they chose. Why is Buddhist chanting torture? <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess that I, was a weird one. I yeah, thought. that was a weird one to choose. And pop music, and they're in Texas. They're like pop music. Fuck that music. Pop music. Ah, pop music's haram. No, I don't get it. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, but the screams of rabbits being slaughtered. Why? Where did they get that recording? 
they just had it just yeah. on a CD, just ready to go. That's insane. To be fair to the FBI, they did try a few nonviolent methods to yeah, get them out. But at least it was nonviolent. They did not work, though. It did not work, no. Uh, despite the increasingly aggressive tactics, Koresh ordered a group of followers to leave. Um, 11 people left and were arrested as material witnesses, with one person charged with conspiracy to murder. Uh, the children's willingness to stay with Koresh disturbed the negotiators, who were unprepared to work around the Branch Davidians' religious zeal. During the siege, several scholars who study apocalypticism Ellipticism. It's a That's big word. quite a word. Yeah. Apocalypticism and religious groups attempted to persuade the FBI that the siege tactics being used by government ages would agents would only reinforce the impression within the Branch Davidians that they were part of a biblical end of times confrontation that had cosmic significance. This would likely increase the chance of a violent and deadly outcome. The religious scholars pointed out that the beliefs of the group may have appeared to be extreme, but to the Branch Davidians, their religious beliefs were deeply meaningful and they were willing to die for them. And I think those guys are totally right. They just reinforced their uh, their doomsday beliefs. Mm -hmm. Even though David is a piece, he does have like a decent kind of on paper case, you know? Like, he's kind of putting bit. these guys against the wall a little bit. Like, it's tough for them, but at the yeah. same time, it's like, we got to get rid of this piece of shit, man. Yeah, and he just has a terrible grip on the group, mm -hmm. too. You know, on all these people. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, you're just reinforcing what all these people believe, and you're just making them lean into their beliefs more with Koresh. That's what it kind of seems like. They're almost shooting themselves in the foot here. Yeah, I, I understand it, and I also, like, I don't know... Uh, I guess the FBI could have leaned harder into negotiation, mm -hmm. you know. All right. So Koresh discussions with the negotiating team became increasingly difficult. He proclaimed that he was the second coming of Christ and had been commanded by his father in heaven to remain in the compound. So now he literally is Christ, he says. There, there it is once again. He's ramping it up. He's doubling down. And now he has another vision from God that he's like, yo, you got to stay there. You yeah. need to hold out. New light. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's the part two right there. Yeah, they always say that. The light gets brighter and brighter towards the end. <laughs> yeah, the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, man. It's, yeah. All right. Now we're going to talk about the final assault. This is where shit gets crazy here. Yeah, yeah. That, that We haven't even got to the crazy part. You thought there was a gun battle before. Now we have a full-on gun battle here. Uh, yeah. Newly appointed U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno approved recommendations by the FBI hostage rescue team to mount an assault after being told that conditions were deteriorating and that children were being abused inside the compound. Reno made the FBI's case to President Clinton, recalling the April 19, 1985, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord siege in Arkansas, which ended without loss of life by a blockade without a deadline. President Clinton suggested similar tactics against the Branch Davidians. Mm -hmm. So that's another, that's what they referred to in Ruby Ridge also. Yeah, like why not just starve them out? Like why go in? Yeah, just wait. Mm -hmm. Eventually they got to Eventually get food, right? they have to. 
I don't know how many MREs did they have. They had that many guns. They made me. Dude. They had enough for years. What if they had like an underground like farming facility? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they might have had enough supplies to last a long time. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, so the assault took place on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety three, because the Branch Davidians were heavily armed. The FBI hostage rescue teams armed included fifty cow rifles and armored combat engineering vehicles, uh, or CEVs. The CEVs used explosives to punch holes in the walls of buildings of the compound so they could pump in CS gas, that's tear gas, and try to force the Branch Davidians out without harming them. The stated plan called for increasing amounts of gas to be pumped in over two days to increase pressure. Officially, no armed assault was to be made. When several Branch Davidians opened fire, the FBI hostage rescue team's response was only to increase the amount of gas being used. After more than six hours, no Branch Davidians had left the building, sheltering instead in an underground concrete block room called the bunker within the building or or using gas masks for those not in the bunker. Mm -hmm. Um, At around noon... Three fires broke out almost simultaneously in different parts of the building and spread quickly. Footage of the blaze was broadcast live by television crews. The government maintains the fires were deliberately started by the Branch Davidians. Some Branch Davidian survivors and other experts maintain that the fires were accidentally or deliberately started by the assault, possibly by the type of pyrotechnic rounds used by the FBI. I don't know. I just want to comment there that I could see uh, Koresh mm-hmm. having those fires started. I totally could, too. I mean, he he was accused of burning down that building earlier to, you know, take over the group. I feel like it's also, too, <coughs> it's kind of the mindset if, if no one, if no one, if we can't have it, no one can. Burn the fucker down. It's possible. He just wanted to, he just knew there was no way out. But all did it, yeah. but I, I could see it the other way too, with you the, know, with the tear gas. Also, another no, the, the pyro rounds, the oh, yeah, yeah, rounds. yeah, the rounds. But were they even firing then? I don't know. Yeah, they were, uh, they were just pumping in mm-hmm. gas. I don't know that they were firing then. Another explanation I've been heard if it wasn't the Branch Davidian starting to fire is that when they're, if you watch the footage, those like big ass vehicles demolishing the house to try to get the tear gas to be thrown in. Mm -hmm. They could have, and also we said before, they had cut off electricity from this house. Maybe they were knocking over lanterns or stuff like that that could have started the fire, but it is also sketchy that the, what was it? Three fires were almost started simultaneously. That's like, that sounds really weird. That is, that is totally sketchy. So I could see it both ways. It's hard to know. Yeah, to me, three different fires. I'm leaning more towards that they did it themselves. That they did start it. I. There is no way to there's know. There's no way to know. Mm-hmm. It's all speculation. Okay. Only nine people left the building during the fire. The remaining Branch Davidians, including the children, were either burned alive... Uh, buried alive. Bur- uh, oh, buried alive by rubble, suffocated, or shot. Many were killed by smoke or carbon monoxide inhalation... Um, and other causes uh, uh, as fire engulfed the building. According to the F, uh, FBI, Steve Schneider, Koresh's top aide, shot and killed Koresh and then himself. In all, 76 people died. A large concentration of bodies, weapons, and ammunition uh, were found in the bunker storage room. 
pretty rough, man. So there we go. That's the final assault, and that's what the ending. I believe a lot of people didn't leave either. I want to say there was only a handful of Branch Davidian members that did vacate the place when it started. It said, yeah, it said only nine. Only nine, yeah. Only so nine, only nine people. people left. 76 mm-hmm. died. Uh, so I'm assuming some of them, I don't know if any of them were like shot before in the shootout and probably died, a couple but probably but, a couple so but yeah yeah they basically all died in that fire. it's crazy that majority of them especially because he did let a few people out uh but most of them did just die in there yeah it's terrible it's fucked up man so all his children died with him mm-hmm. well they died in the from the fire and building collapsing the inhalation, inhalation. Of carbon monoxide and but koresh's top aide shot koresh and then himself so also how he are we went supposed out, to he know, went out hitler style how are we supposed to know it says according to the fbi is that like 100 percent confirmed that that's the way it happened I, I don't know but i'm assuming their report is the official report that's the one we gotta that it's really the only one we could take for sure yeah, but the way the building's burning down and collapsing, I don't see the FBI going in and shooting those two guys and being like, "Oh, they shot themselves." Like it's, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm going with that story. I, I'll, I'll go with yeah, it. Yeah, okay. I think that I'm that, with that. Yeah, because I mean, I guess at this yeah. point too, why lie? Like everything's done and dusted at this point. There's no sugarcoating this anymore. Right. Right. Oh, I think yeah, it might just be speculation of who shot who. Mm-hmm. That might be the part of it that you know. Yeah, they just find bodies with bullets in them, so that's just they gotta, they just gotta Probably assume what happened. What, ma- what makes the most sense? Yeah, and who had the gun when he's dead? You mm-hmm. know. So uh, that's the nutshell. Let's talk about uh, the aftermath. Um, the new ATF director, uh, John McGaw, criticized several acts aspects of the atf raid maga made the treasury blue book report on waco uh required reading for new agents a 1995 government accountability office report on the use of force by federal law enforcement agencies observed that on the basis of treasury's report on the waco operation and views of tactical operation experts at atf owned personnel ATF decided in October 1995 that dynamic entry would only be planned after all other options have been considered and began to adjust its training accordingly. They finally, the ATF finally changed their training. I hope so, but you'd think they would have done that after... Ruby Ridge? You know, like how many times do we have to... I guess this one definitely is on a much bigger scale, but still, man, like fool me (sighs) once, fool me twice... I hope they at least demoted the dude who was in charge dude, of both of the them. The motherfucker needs to get fired. Like, let's just be honest here. Yeah. But he is not good at his job. It does not. It doesn't. The way that they're painting it, like, I don't know how other way you could take it. He seems like, terrible at his job. How is he still in charge after Ruby Ridge? I mean. I don't get it. Anyways. At least move the fucker. Have him do paperwork or something. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. Give him. I don't know, man. Have him mop a floor or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I think on Ruby Ridge, the FBI changed their training, and then now, they, <laughs> yeah, the, the ATF was the ATF was like, "Nah, we got to stick to these tactics; they're going to work." And then they were like, "Okay, no, they don't work." You'd also think that it would have been a trickle down effect, where if the FBI switching up how they're doing things, there would be smaller organizations that would be, "Oh, they're doing this. Why? Right. Why don't we implement some of this too?" 
No, it's all compartmentalized. I think it goes down to a lot of organizations, whether it's the police, whether it's the ATF, the FBI, CIA. I f- a lot of these gentlemen, I and I know gentlemen, women, I know a yeah. lot of them are out there to do the best job they can, but it seems like we need a lot more training. Do you get that vibe? Yeah, I don't want to get in anything political. That's but, true. Um, That's true. But um, I I appreciate these organizations, and I don't think training would is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So if hey, if they did implement, they said they implemented this training. I think that is a good idea. At least there's something good that came out of it, right? And they did review what happened here, and I'm hoping they also reviewed what ru- happened at Ruby Ridge. Mm-hmm. On top of it, uh, I got one last paragraph here. Nothing remains of the buildings today other than concrete foundation components as the entire site was bulldozed two weeks after the end of the siege. Mm -hmm. Only a small chapel built years after the siege stands on the site. From what I saw, it's pretty much just a grass field now. There's not much left over of it. Yeah, I'm sure what was left of the foundation, it's just grass has grown over it. It's Mm -hmm. just... Yeah, that's insane. I. I, I wish I looked it up. I wonder how many people he had there. It was over a hundred. Mm-hmm. There was a good amount of people there, um, and all the majority of them died. Yeah, yeah. So like 20, once again, like folks, no twenty something knows. people got out. Mm-hmm. All his kids died with him. Mm-hmm. That's it's hard to hear, man. Know. Yeah, it's too bad for them. Like it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault they were born in by a crazy psychopath cult leader. It's one thing, even though it's cliche, you can't pick your parents, man. Nope, you definitely can't. I guess I got one more kind of weird one to throw in. Yeah. At the end of that documentary I've been talking about, they had a uh, a member or two on there, and uh, I titled this David's Resurrection. Okay. There is still a couple of small, I guess of the few that did survive, there's a couple guys, I have a few names here, such as Clive Doyle and Sheila Martin, they believe that David one day will still resurrect and come back. So I guess oh there's still gosh. a couple crazies left out there. Of course. Mm-hmm. Still hanging on to it. Which is crazy, too. I remember that Clive Doyle, his daughter was there, and she was one of the ones that died in the fire. So, man, you know, even though he was a piece of shit, the man was convincing. David yeah. Crush was very convincing. Yeah, the grip he had on those people was just, Wow. It's crazy how you can just brainwash the human mind with enough effort and enough charisma, and it's just, it's insane. Yeah, and um, most people think like, oh, it would never happen to me. It never happened to me. Well, it happened. The human psychology is easier to manipulate than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and actually, like, people who are, like, more intelligent think they're not susceptible. They're They're still susceptible. It's... I think one of the big parts of that is the isolation. When you're isolated away from oh, society, yeah. especially, I, oh, yeah. that plays a big part. And for for how long? For an extended period of time, if you're I, like, shit's gonna get weird. But definitely. And then he finds people that are already religiously zealous. I mean, he already started with one cult, and mm-hmm. just he just made it even more worse cult out of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, he finds people that are you know, really deep into their Christian beliefs. And then he starts painting this doomsday uh, picture of what's Armageddon happening and just builds off that fear. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate too, you know, whenever you get this occult like this, he was damn good at doing it. Yep. He was really good at being a manipulative piece of shit. Mm -hmm. (coughs) 
Well, I think uh, I think that's all I got to say about it. What about you, Jake? That's I don't have much else to say. It's really what what the story was is what it is. That's what you got, and yep, it's a sad one. I'll say on this one, I'm glad that the ATF and FBI were going in there and trying to save the kids, but they didn't save the kids. So there was there could have been a much better way to go about it. Well, I mean, if the Branch Davidians started the fires, I don't think that's on them at all. And that's you know? that's the one thing. The end there. It just kind of is what it is. Do you right. do you have a belief if it was if the Branch Davidian started it or if it I, was? I can only speculate. I mm-hmm. I I'm speculating they started it because it's three separate fires. I don't, simultaneously. I don't see why the FBI or ATF or anybody would try to do that. To me, they want they would be trying to get those kids out, and uh, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because. They want the news coverage that they saved them, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't see them trying to do it. It's possible they accidentally did it with their rounds, like it's speculated, but I'm going to lean towards the Branch Davidians did it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to lean towards that it was Koresh. Mm -hmm. That's just total speculation. I have no idea what happened. What what do you think, Jake? I think I'm going to have to go with you there because... Unless they did have like a bunch of kerosene lamps or something in there that got knocked over by the demolition, I just, mm-hmm. I just don't. The main, the one piece of evidence that makes me want to believe that the Branch Davidian started it was the simultaneous fires. Right. No one will ever know, but but yeah, hey, kerosene lanterns knocked over is also likely to, and maybe it was a combination of things. I too. mean, if if you know them going in, you know, to knock down those walls to get pump the gas in shook the whole building mm-hmm. yeah then maybe but i mean wasn't it multiple buildings i want to say they were almost like additions to where the okay. compound started off as smaller and they kept adding on to it okay mm-hmm. but yeah it's just a little sketch that it's a different part but i guess if they sh- if it shook the whole building at the same time and in three separate areas kerosene lanterns knocked over yeah I, it, that's also likely Mm-hmm. It's also possible. I'll go Both sides are plausible for sure. <sighs> so, yeah. Well, guys, um, that's what we got to say. We'd love to hear any comments on it, uh, what you guys think. As always, check out our merch store and, uh, you know, drop us uh, a good review if you liked it. We appreciate it. Uh, until next time, this is Red. This is Jake. Thanks for listening. See you.